And we are in a series called The Whole Story, where we are walking through the Bible from the beginning to the end. And we come today to what has to be one of the strangest parts of the Bible. If you have ever, uh, uh, well, at least for modern ears, right? If you've ever tried to read the Bible from beginning to end, you might have made it through Genesis. You might even have made it through Exodus. And then you came to this book called Leviticus, and you're like, dude, I am out of here. I can't make heads or tails of this, right? Leviticus is a very strange book because it is a very ancient book, a very old book. And there are all kinds of strange laws that make you scratch your head. For instance, did you know there are laws that say eating locusts is okay, but you can't eat shrimp, right? What's up with that? Uh, or how about this one? You can wear clothing of any kind of material. You just can't mix the materials in a single item of clothing. So spandex is definitely out. Sorry, Justin. I uh, know that, uh, that'll be sad. Uh, or how about this? There's a, there's a law that says that if kids talk back to their parents, ready for this? If kids talk back to their parents, you know what's supposed to happen? They're supposed to get stoned. That, that one might actually apply to today, I think. That might actually... <laughs> anyway, very, very strange uh, laws. In fact, bacon, no bacon, right? Why? What's God got against bacon? Like, he made it. It's so good. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Leviticus can be a very challenging book, but understanding the backstory can help. You might remember from our last episode last week, God had just freed his people from slavery in Egypt. He, he leads them out through the Red Sea, remember the sea parts, all that story? He leads them out, and they're in a place called the wilderness, which is kind of like the place between Denver and Lincolnton, just kind of like no man's land. And, and they're out there, and God's mission is to define his people. He, he wants them to find an identity, to establish their culture, most importantly, to know how to relate to him. And so he gives them these laws to help differentiate them from the other people. It's kind of like in my household, I'll say to the kids, you know, hey, Gibsons don't do that, right? Or, or as Gibsons, this is how we handle that. And you probably have the same thing in your family. God is wanting to say, in my household, in my family, this is how we do things. And so he came up with a lot of these laws to differentiate his people from the peoples of that region. As it turns out, this is actually where the whole bacon thing comes from. Did you know this? It, the Philistines, which if you don't know the Philistines, remember David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine. The Philistines lived in that same region. They were another people. They did not worship Yahweh, the one true God. And they were known as a very violent people. They also were known as pig lovers. So what most scholars think is that the law to not eat bacon, to not eat pig, was a way of differentiating from the Philistines. God doesn't have anything against pig. He, he made it. He knows how tasty bacon is. But he wanted his people to be different from the Philistines. And so here was a physical, practical reminder that they are to not be like the Philistines. They are not to be ruled by violence and by idol worship. Got a, a picture for that? Now, I don't know which culture it was that worshiped spandex, but apparently that was an issue too. So, but you get how, the idea of how that works. Well, Leviticus, as it turns out, is a rule book for priests. And priests were just like the pastors of the day. You probably were reading that passage. You're thinking, yeah, we need to atone for Aaron's sins, right? That's a big deal. We need to do that. But Leviticus lays out the ground rules for how God's people were to worship him. And it builds and builds to a climax right here in chapter 16. It's here in chapter 16 that we see the heart of Leviticus, that its purpose was to take a spirituality that could seem rather otherworldly and to make it tangible, physical, practical for God's people. 
We rather prefer an image of a God that is separate from us, somewhere way out there, a God who is spiritual, but who will mostly leave us alone. But the God of the Bible is way too honest for that, way too real for that. He knows that the spiritual and the physical must be connected. And that's what I want to explore with you today. All of this builds to our climactic chapter, chapter 16, on what is called the Day of Atonement, or in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. Now, what I want to do with you today, we're going to do some heavy teaching. This is going to be a little bit of teaching moment. This is going to feel a little bit like class, but there's some really cool stuff. And there are three images that I want to draw your attention to in this story. Uh, for those of y'all who grew up going to church three times a week, remember you went Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night? Anybody right? Uh, it, you're going to love today because I'm going to give you three mini sermons. You're going to feel like you went to church three times, all right? So then you can tell grandma, it'll be all good. So three images we were going to look at. The first image is the tent. The second is the sacrifice. And the third is the two goats. The tent, the sacrifice, and the two goats. Sermon number one. Here we go. Image, the tent. Chapter 16 opens this way. God says to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, whatever that is, all right, we'll get to that, behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. Woo. Four, I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. What is going on here? More strangeness. Well, again, remember, God has led his people out of Egypt, and he's led them into the wilderness. And as they are traveling through the wilderness, we're told that God goes before them in a pillar of cloud by day, excuse me, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God is going before them, but he is not with them. It's a very intriguing image, but God was not content to be separate from his people. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to be in relationship with them. So he gives these instructions to build this tent. It's literally called the tent of meeting. It's where God is going to meet with his people. Now, the tent had three basic sections. We have a picture of it here on the screen. There's the fence that went around the outside, which was to keep the neighbor's dogs out. And then there was the actual covering tent proper. That's kind of the middle section, right? And then inside of that was a curtain that separated what's called the Holy of Holies from the rest of the area underneath the tent. And once a year, and once a year only, the, the lead priest, the head dude, was to go into that Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice to atone for the sins of God's people. Now, this Holy of Holies, we can get a little bit Sideways on. The word holiness kind of, we think holier than thou. We got all this other uh, baggage with holiness. The word holy literally just means to set aside, to, to distinguish, to consecrate. So this tent was, there was nothing special about it. It was made out of normal material. But this was the space within the camp of God's people that was set aside for God so he could dwell with his people. Now, here's what's really cool. I'm almost done with the nerdy part here. Here's what's really cool about this tent. This idea that God wanted to dwell among his people was unique amongst the Israelites. None of the other ancient Middle Eastern gods did this. Not the Canaanite gods, not the Egyptian gods, not Marduk, not Asher, not Baal. None of these gods did that. They all dwelled in the high places on the mountaintops where their people had to climb all the way up and shout really loud to try and get their attention if they wanted their prayers answered. 
but not the God of Israel, not Yahweh. He is said to have come down from the mountain to make his dwelling amongst his people. Well, that's an image we're going to need to hold on to when we get to the New Testament, isn't it? You see, the reason the tent is such a powerful image in the Bible is because it is a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. It's a physical reminder to God's people that he was with them and that he wanted relationship with them. Now, I think this is one of the reasons why actually Sunday morning is so important for us as a church, right? I mean, Sunday mornings, we think, well, you just go to church. But there's actually something quite mystical that happens when we gather together. I love that we're able to do church online. I love that we're able to dial in in that way. But there is yet something special about the physical place. That you might not know this, uh, my family knows this because they have to stand next to me and worship every Sunday morning. But one prayer that I pray every Sunday morning during the first song is I just say, Lord, would you come and make your presence known in this place among us? And in that way, this gymnasium, and it's just a gym, I mean, it's hardwood floors, bricks, some drywall, right? It's just a normal gym. In that way, God, by his presence, makes this holy space. It's why what we're going to do on the land in two weeks is so important. We're going to dedicate, consecrate that space as holy space for God. I can't quite explain it. It might have been during one of the songs or maybe one of the really bad dad jokes or whatever it is, but God seemed to just pierce your heart in a way that you knew it was the real God and he was present to you speaking or encouraging or challenging. See, God loves for his presence to be known which is what the image of the tent is all about. But that brings us to our second image in this story. That is the image of sacrifice. Yes, finally, the blood and guts part. All right, let's get to that. Look at how uh, the story continues. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron, I thought there was just one offering. What are you talking about? Sin offering, burnt offering, what's going on? Well, again, for us modern people, this can seem a little strange, right? Why why all the animals? Why all the blood and guts? This just seems strange. Well, as it turns out, we have a very similar practice in our culture today. One of the most common offerings that we make in our culture is the offerings of flowers. Did you know there are 4.7 billion dollars, billion with a B, $4.7 billion spent every year in the U.S. on flowers. And and that was just at your daughter's wedding, right? I mean, it's just incredible, right? Lots of money spent on flowers. We love our flowers, but we do. We love to give flowers. We love to go out and cut them or, or pick them and then give them to someone we care about and say, here, look at this beautiful thing I killed for you, right? (laughs) You see, it's not all that different from a sacrifice, is it? Now, there are lots of different reasons that we give flowers. There might be a lot of different reasons why I give flowers to my wife. So, Mary Robin, would you come on up here and help me? She doesn't know I'm picking on her, but she's such a trooper. So, so if I was to give Mary Robin flowers, I'm going to give these to you in a minute. Come stand next to me. Come stand next to me. Hi, baby. Hey, <laughs> uh, there are lots of different reasons I might give flowers, right? I might want to give flowers just to tell Mary Robin how much I love her. Oh, okay, or, or... <laughs> Or I I might give flowers because it's a special day, like Valentine's Day or our anniversary or a birthday, right? 
Well, it's none of those. So, uh, but you, there might be a third reason I give flowers, which would be to, to say sorry for, or to pl- please forgive me, right? Like if just hypothetically speaking, I broke the last of her favorite coffee mugs, you, you know, the ones from the set that we got a little over 20 years ago for our wedding that they don't make at Pottery Barn anymore that you can't order again. Hypothetically speaking, if I was to break that, <laughs> I might want to give flowers and say, I'm so sorry, please forgive me, right? <laughs> Thank you, Mayor Robert. Thank you. I'll let you guess as to what the real reason is that I'm giving flowers to Mayor Robin today. But you get the idea, right? There are lots of reasons why I might make the offering the sacrifice of flowers. And it's exactly the same in the book of Leviticus. There were many different kinds of sacrifice. There was what's called the free will or the fellowship offering, which you might make to God as a sign of gratitude, just to tell God you love him, how grateful you are. There was a whole burnt offering. That's the kind where you prepared a really good barbecue and you gave him the whole thing. You just said, God, I'm going to give you all of this. It's all yours. I'm so indebted to you. Or there was actually another kind of offering called the guilt offering or sin offering, which was made for the atonement. That was the please forgive me kind of offering, right? Offered in as a sign of repentance, a way of acknowledging wrongdoing and saying you're sorry. Now, here's what's really amazing about all these sacrifices, right? If you've dialed out, tune back in. Here's what's really cool. In all but one of these sacrifices, the sacrifice itself is actually shared between the person making the sacrifice and God. In other words, in all of the offerings, I bring that animal, that delicious roasted, not pig, roasted, I don't know, heifer, whatever it is, lamb, right? I bring that, and then we prepare it, and the blood is poured out as a sign of life, forgiveness of sins, and then we cook the meat, and then God and I actually share that meal together. Did you know that? Because sacrifice, above all else, sacrifice is a sign of relationship. That's what the Old Testament wants us to see. It's a way of relating to God. It's a way of connecting the up here and uh, up there and the down here. Now, you might be tempted to think, okay, Aaron, that's neat and all, but aren't we New Testament people? I mean, aren't, uh, we don't really need sacrificial animals anymore, do we? And I have a note here that I made to myself that says, do not make any cat jokes right now. Well, the good news is we don't need to sacrifice animals. Jesus did away with the sacrificial system of the temple. But, but, here's the key thing. Sacrifice is still a vital part of our spiritual life of faith. In fact, the New Testament book of Hebrews, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, the author picks up this very image of Jesus as our new high priest, just like Aaron in Leviticus 16. And he writes this. Look what he says. He says, through Jesus, therefore, pay attention, through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, interesting, God is pleased. Interesting. Okay, so even though we don't offer animals on an altar, we still have some sacrifices to make. In fact, the author of Hebrews gives us three right here. Did you catch these? Worship, he says, worship. That's a kind of sacrifice. When we set aside time on Sunday mornings to come and worship, 
we are making a kind of sacrifice. When I set aside time in the morning to pray, to study, to meditate, that is a kind of sacrifice. I'm giving my attention. I'm giving my time to God. I'm saying, God, you are worthy of my praise. You are worthy of my time. You're worthy of my attention. Serving. Serving is another kind of sacrifice. A lot of us think we serve, well, just when it's convenient or because it feels good, and it might be those things. But as Jesus followers, we serve because it's what our master calls us to do. And whether you're holding babies in the nursery or serving teens in our remix program or stacking chairs here on a Sunday morning as part of the pack-up team, your service is a kind of sacrifice. It's an offering to God. I know one guy on our setup team who every time he places a chair, maybe the chair you're sitting in right now, as he places that chair, he prays for the person that will sit in that chair. He says, God, will you meet with this person today? Will you speak to them? Will you touch their heart with each and every chair? His serving is a sacrifice. But there's one last kind of sacrifice we see here, and that is the sacrifice of giving. Giving is a kind of sacrifice. You know, it's interesting. It's in the book of Leviticus that the, in the context of worship and sacrifice, that we are first presented with this idea called tithing. If you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard this word before. It was first practiced by God's people in the Old Testament, in Leviticus. A tithe literally meant 10%. Leviticus 30 says this, 10% of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. It is set aside for the Lord. You see, we're called to not give out of what is left over. We're called to give as a kind of sacrifice, a way of recognizing that everything we have comes from God. So worship, serving, giving, these are some kinds of sacrifices that we practice today. These aren't just things we do. These are physical expressions of our relationship with God. But, but, why should we bother with all that, right? Why should we even make the effort? Well, that brings me to our third sermon. Ready? You still with me? Our third sermon, our third and final image. And that is the image of the scapegoat. Perhaps the greatest image of all in the book of Leviticus, in the whole story, is this image of the scapegoat. If you've ever heard this phrase, did you know this is where it actually comes from? This is its origin. Right here in Leviticus 16, See, this was the most important day of the Jewish year. It marked, really, the Jewish New Year. It was the fresh start. It was the do-over. It was the clean slate. And was called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonements, the day when atonement was made. We talked about atonement last week in what was easily the best sermon I've ever preached. Thank you, Rachel, for writing that. Uh, if you don't know what that's all about, I encourage you to go check out last week's message. We talked about atonement all around. It's a very, very old idea. And every culture throughout history has recognized that when a wrong is done, when an injustice has been done, it must be atoned for. It must be compensated for. Take, for instance, if I steal your car, right? Let's say I steal your car and I drive through Bojangles, and I spill crumbs everywhere, and I take it for a joyride, and I crash it on New 16. It's not enough for me to come to you and say, oops, my bad, right? <laughs> I won't do that again. I'll try harder next time I steal your car. No, that's not enough. I need to do what? 
what? I, I need to pay you back, right? I need to right the wrong that I did to you. The word atonement first entered the English language about 500 years ago. And it literally means at one mint. At one mint. You see, when I do you wrong, our relationship is damaged. It is severed. It is broken. And it's only when I pay you back, when I make right that wrong, that our relationship is restored. Our oneness is restored. We are at one again. Get the idea of at one meant? And what was very, very clear to God's people, at least for some living in Israel, what was very, very clear was that we all in one way or another have violated our relationship with a just, holy, and righteous God. He's a real person. And this was no small problem. <laughs> See, every time we sin, every time we mistreat somebody, every time we cheat somebody, every time we ignore, flatter, manipulate, deceive, use, exploit, gossip, demean, oppress, marginalize, judge, every time we relate wrongly with others or with the creation or with ourselves, we violate a God whose character is nothing but holy and righteous and whose will for his creation is nothing but good. And my friends, who is going to pay for that accident? Whose account has enough money in it for that? Well, the answer is nobody. Such as it was on the Day of Atonement that one of the most gripping dramas was played out. Here's what would go down. Two goats would be taken... Lots would be cast. One would be assigned the sacrificial goat. The other was the scapegoat. One would be sacrificed. Its blood poured out on the altar. But the other one was spared. This goat, picture this, was brought to the chief priest. And he would literally lay his hands on the head of this goat. Symbolically placing on it all of the sins of God's people Israel. How long did that take? <laughs> and he would confess them. And then someone who would be specifically assigned would lead the goat outside of the village into the wilderness and he would be set free as a sign of God's mercy and grace and compassion for just as he is high in the heavens, so are our sins scattered from us as far as the east is from the west, as the psalmist says. Look at how this is described in verse 21. He, that's Aaron the priest, is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed to the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness." And the idea was this. It was not to be missed. The idea was that at least on this day, at least one day a year, the Israelites could say, I get a fresh start. Oh, God's not holding that against me anymore. Oh, thank you, Lord, for your mercy and grace. That was the Day of Atonement. That was Yom Kippur. Now, let me ask you a personal question. Who's your scapegoat? Who 
Who's your scapegoat? Really? I mean, when you confess your sins, where do they go? When you do wrong, when you suffer shame, what happens to that? Do you just kind of pretend that they aren't around anymore? Or do you just hope that maybe they don't come back to bite you? Who would love you so much that they would take all of your sin and shame on their own head and go to a solitary place for you? Well, the answer, of course, is Jesus, right? Listen to how 2 Corinthians describes it. God made him, that's Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be a sin offering for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Turns out that what Leviticus was doing all along, what Leviticus was about from the very beginning, 1,500 years before Jesus, Leviticus was one giant prequel to the movie starring Jesus. It's all about him. Which brings me to our conclusion for all three sermons. All three sermons. What are we to do with this idea of sacrifice? I mean, really, right? This is still kind of a strange thing. How do we make sense of this as Jesus people? Well, you know what's so powerful about this image is that it reminds me of just how dependent we are on God's mercy and grace. I want you to imagine for me. Can you imagine this? Imagine you're standing in that village, right? And just think about all the, all the times you've blown. Just think about all the places you start. Think about all the shame that you keep hidden from everyone on social media because we just want to present our best face, right? We just think about all that. Oh, if they knew about that, oh, man, I, I, that would be terrible, right? And all that stuff that we carry from maybe just last week, maybe last year, maybe last decade, all that junk. And you're standing there, and the priest brings this goat into the center courtyard. And he gets down on his knees, and he, he puts his, his hand right on the head of that goat. And, and you can't hear him, but you see his mouth moving. And, it, and you realize that it's, it's your shame. It's your mistakes. It's your guilt that he's putting on that goat. And you feel this burden just begin, begin to lift off you. And then someone takes that goat and they, they walk it outside of the village where you will never have to see that goat again. And you would say, oh, Lord, thank you for your mercy and grace. You see, sacrifice in the old and in the new is all about love. We sacrifice for the people and things that we love the most, don't we? Think about the things you sacrifice for in your life, for your family, for your spouse, for your kids, for your parents. Think about the sacrifice you do. Why? Because of love, right? Think about the sacrifices that those loved ones make for you. Why do they do that? Well, they do it for love. Which is why Jesus' friend John, when he would sit down and write the gospel, he would remember those words from Jesus when he said, what is God like? Well, he's like this. He, he loved the world so much that he gave his only son. God sacrificed for you and me because of his love. 
Sacrifice is not about earning. It's about loving. We don't sacrifice to earn God's love. We sacrifice in response to a God who has made the ultimate sacrifice for us. And my friends, there can be, there is, there will never be greater news than that. So how about you? How about you? Who's your scapegoat? Who is it that you have trusted to deal with your shame, with your mistakes, with your regrets? What if today again you were to look on Jesus as the Father placed his hands on his head and said, it is finished. My grace is sufficient for you. Can we pray? Father, what a powerful, powerful image that you did not wait for us to climb or find a way out of our own hole, but instead you came to draw near to us, to meet with us, to be present with us. And that knowing we could never atone for our own sins, you yet again provided a way in sacrificing, in giving your own son to be our scapegoat, our savior. Jesus, today I pray that for my friends who are still carrying shame, they know they're forgiven, but they can't seem to let go of this, this shame and this regret. Would today you grant them the freedom that comes with your forgiveness? Would they know that you have borne their shame? And would they no longer feel the need to walk in it? Jesus, we're so thankful for all you have done for us. And worship seems to be the only appropriate response. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Why don't we do that now in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen.